Welcome to EW's Binge of Harry Potter. I'm Mark Snedeker. And I'm Molly Smith. And it all ends. It all ends here. tears are flowing. It all ends here. (laughs) It all ends now. Everyone's dead. Colin Creevy is dead. Fred Weasley is dead. But (laughs) lucky for you, we're here. (laughs) We're not dead. Yeah, uh, not yet at least. Welcome to Deathly Hallows Part 2. Ooh, I just feel weird saying that. (laughs) This is it. This is the end of the road. Not entirely. So this is the last film in the series. Molly and I will still be here on this podcast for two more weeks, bringing you Fantastic Beasts, which we have both seen and have a lot to talk about. A lot of theories. And um, Cursed Child as well. So we're not done yet, but this is the culmination of the Harry Potter seven book series. Deathly Hallows Part 2 comes out in movie theaters July 15th, 2011. Deathly Hallows Part 2 would become... A, the highest grossing movie of 2011, so just think on that for a second. Sorry, Avengers, you didn't exist yet. B, the highest grossing film in the Harry Potter series with $381 million, which I think was just uh, domestic, actually. Yeah, because it actually grossed over a billion worldwide. It was the ninth film to do that. Just some change, you know. Yeah, and uh, (laughs) it was also the highest reviewed Harry Potter film on Rotten Tomatoes. It was at 96%, which... Maybe there was just some like nostalgia goggles on there. Not yeah. nostalgia well, goggles. Was but... that the audience review? No, 96? no, no. 96%. Oh, percent. Was... Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm I mean... sure nostalgia played a part of it, but I do think it's a really good action movie that ties up so many loose ends. Yeah, it is actually, it is a fantastic movie. It took something that is kind of unfilmable and made it kind of perfectly filmable. But for the purposes of today, there are a lot of differences between the movie of Deathly Hallows Part 2 and the book. So hopefully we're going to guide us through some of those big ones that stand out to us as we go through our top 10 goodbyes from Deathly Hallows Part 2. And meanwhile, we also have a really great guest. We have Ivana Lynch, who played Luna Lovegood, rounding out our interviews for the seven-book, eight-movie series. Um, so stick around as we go through the final chapters of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. So number 10 on our list of goodbyes in Deathly Hallows Part 2 obviously starts over at Shell Cottage, which is Bill and Floor's house by the sea. Which actually is kind of pretty cool, you know. Like they, it seems they, like a nice vacation house, if under different circumstances. Yeah, like <laughs> they've done well for themselves. They probably Airbnb that during the Battle of Hogwarts, actually. But our number ten goodbye is to Bogrod. So they're at Shell Cottage and they are interrogating the people who have survived Malfoy Manor. Right? You've got Griphook there. You've got Luna, and you've got Mister Ollivander. For the purposes of a movie, we need Ollivander to kind of re-explain to audience members who forgot or didn't read the books um, what the Deathly Hallows are. But then you've got Griphook, who Harry enlists to help him break into Gringotts and get Godric Gryffindor's sword, which is in Bellatrix Lestrange's vault. And that is how we get to Gringotts. And they've got a kind of a great plan to have Griphook help them in in exchange for the sword. They've got just enough polyjuice potion for Hermione to turn into a... I'm sorry. I just love this part. 
<laughs> yeah. Because there's only enough for Hermione to turn into Bellatrix Lestrange. But there's not enough for Ron, and they do some really just unconvincing manipulation. Yeah, it's like it's like straight up Halloween party city, but like day after when like nothing is really left. So it's like November first costumes. They like glue some hair to him. He goes by the name of Dragomir Despard, which he's Despard for a better look, in my opinion. (laughs) Also, kudos to Helena Bonham Carter for playing Hermione, playing Helena Bonham Carter playing Bellatrix. She does such a good job with it. Like, it's you genius. really believe that it's Hermione as Bellatrix. Right. Well, it also is Hermione's voice. It's Emma Watson's voice, which well, of helps, course, but, but even like she's genius. When you see her sort of, like, stumble in her heels, and when she says, like, good morning. Yeah. <laughs> Bellatrix wouldn't say good morning. She's fantastic. <laughs> we get to Gringotts, and of course, the only way they get in is when Harry, under the invisibility cloak, with big-ass grip hook on his back, uses the Imperious Curse on Bogrod, who is kind of the old goblin in charge. And that's our that's our number 10 goodbye. We, fi- we finally got there. <laughs> number 10, first goodbye in Harry Potter Deathly Hallows Part 2 is Bogrod, a guy who we've never met before, but quickly see die once we get down the Gringotts vaults all the way into the Lestrange's vault, which is guarded by a dragon. That dragon, that gave me some real feels. Like when Hermione's like, that's barbaric, that they keep it chained up and teach it to expect pain when it hears bells. Like that was horrifying. Sure. Okay. I wasn't as affected. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, it's a dragon. I feel bad. Well, we all know how much you hate creatures, Mark. After I do hate some creatures. Although Fantastic Beasts, get me a Niffler right now. I will say that dragon, it is in the film, it's a white Ukrainian iron belly. It's never mentioned in the books what breed it is, but that's what it is in the film. And it's interesting because if you were to put a wand to my head and tell me, name the most famous dragon from Harry Potter... Would you say the Gringotts dragon or would you say Norbert? Mm. I couldn't I, even paint a picture of Norbert, to be honest with you. I, I couldn't do a crude cartoon. I think that visually the Gringotts dragon definitely stands out more. But as far as like, I, well, I don't know. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, it's funny. The Gringotts dragon didn't have a name. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, so that says something. But he's the one in all the Harry Potter, um, Wizarding World, Universal Studios, those whole things. Like the ads and everything. Yeah. He's just like that generic white dragon. Anyways, so we're in Gringotts. We're with Griphook, who, yes, is the same goblin that showed Harry his vault in the first book. Yes, is the same one that went on the run with, like, Dean Thomas and friends once Voldemort rose to power. And it's interesting. He's He was played in the first movie by Vern Troyer, who you know from the Austin Powers movies as uh, Mini-Me. Um, but he was voiced by Warwick Davis, who played Flitwick. And then in, in this movie, but movie eight, they're just like, you know what? Screw it. Like Warwick, Warwick Davis for both. Yep. And he betrays them. He gets them into the Lestrange vault, but uh, doesn't get them out. Such an ass. He like, unnecessary, bro. Come it's on. like, oh, I, oh, like semantics. And it's like using just, a good pun and being proud of it. He's like, oh, I never said that. I mean, he's a goblin. He knows sort of the whole deal with the sword of Gryffindor, how it presents itself to a true Gryffindor in a time of need, blah, 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 all that stuff. So I just, I don't understand necessarily the like deep desire for him to have it knowing that it could not be his at any moment. Well, he believes that once the purchaser of a goblin-made item has died, it goes back to the goblins. It doesn't just get inherited, which is like, who who are you to say? Like, who are you to say, sir? That's like if Mattel took back every Barbie that a grandma gave to a, a daughter <laughs> in the 50s. 
Now, it's interesting. So they go to get Helga Hufflepuff's cup in the Lestrange vault. And there's a theory that Voldemort gave Bellatrix this horcrux of his, a huge um, commitment, kind of, because he always wanted to have a vault at Gringotts. And as an orphan, you know, there was no greater honor than a wizarding family's vault at Gringotts, right? And so this is sort of yet another insecure thing that Voldemort has done. And it's also another thing that Harry has that Voldemort doesn't. Yeah, good point. Good point. Mm-hmm. He he hates uh he hates everyone else's wealth but his. Anyway, love the Lestrange Vault sequence. Um, there's the Gemino Curse, which is a multiplication spell where everything you touch keeps multiplying. Some logistical loopholes in the film. I'm not gonna lie, <laughs> but there it is still kind of pretty crazy. And actually, I thought that was a great representation of the book. It was a great sequence, but they do leave out sort of the other curse that's in there, the Flagrante Curse, which yeah. is what makes it sort of boiling hot yeah like, and it burns them all and you don't really see that aside from them like repairing their hands later. yeah Hermione so once they once they do break out they got the cup they break out with the dragon you know what happens and they finally fly away back to the countryside close enough to Hogwarts and then um you know jump off Hermione like drops stuff onto their hands and they never know like as a fan you wonder you go what the hell was that it's essence of Dittany which apparently is like the band-aid or Tylenol of Hogwarts because it's it like does everything it's like oh like a stomach upset essence of Dittany yeah I would like some of that essence of Dittany (laughs) like hungover essence of Dittany (laughs) so yeah it burned their skin and um that's like a weird thing in the movie that was simultaneously left out and yet Still, in, I guess included. it's just like one of those little nods or whatever. Yeah, so that we could talk about it right here, right now on this podcast. Anyway, now we're back in the countryside. That was a quick um, adventure to get us where we need to be, which is back at Hogwarts first via Hogsmeade. Um, so we're in Hogsmeade. The Catterwalding charm basically is the alarm charm. So iPhone, get which ready. Which is horrible. Yeah, it's it's terrible, it's like but it'll nails uh, on a chalkboard. Totally. So Harry, Ron, and Hermione apparate into Hogsmeade are immediately. People are immediately after them. Yeah, they're they're immediately recognized just by the screech of his uh, his appearance. Aberforth Dumbledore saves them, takes them into the Hogshead. Now we told you about the Dumbledore stories last week, but uh, just a refresher: Dumbledore hasn't really talked to his brother Aberforth, or vice versa since the duel that accidentally resulted in the death of their sister Ariana in 1899. Yeah, and you definitely get a sense of that animosity here, just the way that Aberforth speaks about his brother. Yeah. Um, I mean, I imagine they had contact. I really do. I can't imagine they didn't. But for our purposes, it's been like... (laughs) it's Honestly, it's actually been like 99 years, I think. (laughs) They had to like send each other Christmas cards, but were they best friends? I don't think so. Also, Dumbledore has for sure gotten a drink of Butterbeer in Hogsmeade over 99 (laughs) years and run into his brother and been like, oh my God. It's like seeing an ex. You just kind of look away. Um, (laughs) Anyway, though, there's no goodbyes here. I guess the only goodbye is goodbye to Aberforth's little piece of glass that he used to help Harry because that's not needed anymore because Harry's back. Aberforth gets Neville through the portrait and um that brings us to goodbye number nine snape's tenure as headmaster what a headmaster <laughs> was, was he <laughs> i mean by the end of this yes but for right now he's not looking so good basically harry gets into the castle 
via this passageway with Neville. He's welcomed warmly by all his fellow students. They all cheer for him. It was actually quite touching. This yeah. is like the first time of many I teared up in this movie. Well, right. And it's the whole it's like the whole Dumbledore's army, which is I think the first thing to talk about difference in the book. In the book, they've only been there for like two weeks, whereas in the movie it makes it look like they've been camping out there for like nine months. Also, a lot of students, a lot of key players are basically missing. In the book, these people are not here. The following people. Luna is not there. Dean is not there. Ginny, Fred, George are not there. Lee Jordan, Cho Chang. None of them are actually in the Room of Requirement kind of makeshift dorm that the DA made. But in the movie, obviously, it you know it makes sense. But Neville does say to Ab- Aberforth Dumbledore, hey, Al, we got a couple more coming through. It turns out to be like 10 more people. Mm. But um, Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, I guess you do see Ginny run in, but you never really uh, pay too much focus on it. Anyway, love that little DA room. I love the refuge of it all because they're hiding out from the Caros, who are Snape's, I guess, like, co. It's like they're like his umbrages. They're like a brother and sister Death Eater duo, um, and they're in charge of discipline at Hogwarts. So you see Neville all beat up because he basically stood up for some first years that the Carols were being real nasty, too. Yeah, Amicus Caro is um, the brother, and he teaches... He doesn't even teach defense against the dark arts anymore. He teaches the dark arts, like, straight up. Um, (laughs) This is how to be a Death Eater 101. Yeah, they do the Cruciatus curse on people who have gotten detentions um, in the They're making Umbridge look tame. For sure, for real. Uh, and Electo Caro is the sister, and she teaches muggle studies, which is, like, not really – I mean, she really doesn't teach muggle studies. It's, it's like, basically like, how to do muggles dirty. Yeah, it's just, like, they're all animals, but, like, here's a quiz. <laughs> anyway, that brings us to um, Snape as headmaster. This whole sequence is super different book and movie. In the movie, Harry goes undercover with the rest of the Gryffindors. They're all called to the Great Hall – Harry, you know, busts out. How dare you stand where he stood? All four houses are there. McGonagall steps in front of Harry. It's the first time we ever see her really do some straight up magic beyond like transforming a cup into a cat. When McGonagall does magic, it just, ugh. I I love everything about her. Totally. And this was an amazing, like, she never gets the right amount of love, I think, that she always deserved. She is the female Dumbledore. Harry never even hugged her in the movie. But they have, like, a nice moment here, you know, where she's like, what do you need, Potter? I'm here for you. And and I don't know. I mean, you definitely, even if they're not necessarily as outwardly, like, homies, like, you you know they're cool. Well, this brings up, so... This brings up the whole difference in the book because in the movie, McGonagall and Harry don't have exactly what you said. There's not, you know, there's not that much love there that we get to see. But um, the whole thing in the book that takes place, the only reason Harry reveals himself is because McGonagall is disrespected. It's the complete opposite in the book, right? In the book, Harry ends up in the Ravenclaw common room to look at what the, the statue, what the diadem on her looks like, right? Ch- or Luna takes her up. One of the Caros is waiting. They stun the Caro. The other Caro comes in, um, the brother, and so does McGonagall. Harry's under the invisibility cloak. The brother Caro, what's his name? Elect- Am- Am- Amicus? I keep forgetting. Amicus. Amicus yeah. spits in McGonagall's face in the book. And Harry whisks off his invisibility cloak, says, you shouldn't have done that, and straight up stuns Amicus Caro. It's actually amazing. That's sick. It's- it's like one of the best moments between Harry and, and McGonagall. I can't believe it wasn't in the movie. I understand why it wasn't in the movie, but God, that was such a great scene. And McGonagall's like pride. Oh, it's so good. But both in the movie and in the book, 
McGonagall does go on to fight Snape. In the book, she's aided by Professor Flitwick and Sprout, whereas in the movie, it's just her. And uh, you'll notice that while McGonagall is fighting Snape in the middle of the Great Hall in the film, um, he actually deflects two of her kind of spells to hit the Caros so that they're down for the count and can't, They you can't know. gang up on her. Yeah, basically. there's nothing that would have stopped them save for a f- getting her a little bit closer from just killing her right there. So Snape, yet another good moment for Snape. And, it's uh, very much like that uh, Hedwig theory that you pointed out last week about Snape potentially being the one to kill Hedwig. Right, to, to protect Harry in the long run. So, yeah, really interesting um, way that Professor Snape is sacked from Hogwarts, but that brings us to... Um, Number eight on our goodbyes is McGonagall's Pierre Totem Locomotor Virginity. You do realize, of course, we can't keep up you-know-who indefinitely. That doesn't mean we can't delay him. And his name is Voldemort. Phileas, you might as well use it. He's going to try to kill you either way. Pierre Totem Locomotor! right she she still swipes a new v card even at her ripe old age and it's a it's a spell that she never got to use and now she does it's interesting too that you use the word virginity because there's a backstory about mcgonagall about how she took like a vow of celibacy so (sighs) just pointing that out everyone this is my official plea for a mcgonagall prequel yeah girl well i hope she's in fantastic beast but that's for another podcast anyway so yeah mcgonagall um at this point the battle is starting People are being evacuated in, through the hogshead. Slytherins are being sent to the dungeons. McGonagall has warned Professor Slughorn, it's time to choose sides. It's time to kind of decide the fate of Slytherin House. I feel like Slughorn was always on the good side, though. He just... Yeah, but his you know, students in this are, they're the ones who want to turn Harry over. That's true. Um, Pansy, we're looking at you, girl. Yeah. Pansy Parkinson, we're going to bleep this out, but <laughs> you. <laughs> So it's a really interesting uh, way that all the teachers now kind of prepare for battle. Some things left out of the movie here are, you know, Professor Sprout goes off to get all her crazy plants. And, like, at one point in the book, you see her literally lobbing mandrakes over the walls. She's like, good luck with that, Death Eaters. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Trelawney straight up dropping crystal balls from, like, high... high, uh, Elevations, like, I love it. It's crazy. Like, Do whatever you can. Yeah, Hagrid's got grop. Everybody's just like doing crazy stuff. You know, it's it's super fun. I wish in the movie they showed you more of the teachers doing stuff because when they yeah, are sure. when they are casting the spell to protect the whole school, that giant shield charm from um, Fianta Dori and Protego Maxima, all these and huge... Repello Enig. Oh, I'm gonna butcher this. Repello Enig. <laughs> I'm glad we don't have you casting the shield charm. <laughs> Tell you that much. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not mansplaining. Sorry. Yeah. So it's uh yeah. It's only like three people. It's like Molly Weasley, Professor Flitwick, and McGonagall. Like, oh no, and, and Slughorn. Slughorn. Like, could we not get some more teachers to help out? Like, Trelawney. There was a lot to do, man. Trelawney needed to throw her crystal yeah. balls. So, like, let's just say maybe the shield would have lasted a little bit longer if uh, <laughs> more than three people did it. Yeah, agreed. Anyway, 
McGonagall also sends Seamus and Neville off to go uh, set fire to the rain <laughs> via the bridge. Kiwadel. Yeah. Um, and but in the movie, it's only Neville that only, we see at yeah. the bridge. Um, and Voldemort's attack begins. So just picture right now at this point, everyone is running wild. Uh, it is literally insane. There's some beautiful music, but not even the best music just yet. And um, that will bring us to number seven of goodbyes. This was oh, actually... It's, it's not exactly a uh, goodbye. goodbye. It's kind of a hello, if anything. She's already she's already dead. Yeah. It's the great lady. <laughs> <laughs> Helena Ravenclaw. Yeah, this is kind of a hello. It's kind of a hello, but a little bit too late because, yeah, she is dead. So it's sort of like goodbye. I wish... You know, we would... It's like meeting a good friend on, like, the last day of school. You're like, yeah, oh, Yeah, no, totally. Oh, well. So in the movie, it is Luna's idea for Harry to go visit the great lady. Cho Chang had previously said in regards to Rowena Ravenclaw's lost diadem, that no one alive has seen it. Uh, And it is Luna who says, well, you have to talk to someone who's dead. Which is a very Luna thing to say. Like, it's different from the book, but it seems fitting to me, like, with the character. In the book, Harry's the one who realizes it. And uh, it's not Cho who's like, well, Luna, like, it's lost, dumbass. Suck it, Cho. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, actually, in the book, Harry uh, goes for help from nearly headless Nick. But... He eventually he gets to the gray lady, who is also a very different film movie. Film, she is kind of sad and angry um, when Harry asks, and she has that crazy, he defiled it. I know what he did. You that know. was, like, really unsettling for me. Well, her face literally morphs at one point um, during her scream. Did you ever notice? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just, like, elongates. It's super crazy. But in the book, there's actually the story you really need to know about the, the truth of Helena Ravenclaw. The reason she's gray and the reason she regrets um, all this diadem, diadem talk, um, she stole her diadem from her mother. She straight up stole it from her Ravenclaw mom to make herself more clever. The mom protected her, never revealed that it was her own daughter that stole the diadem. But as Rowena was dying, she did want to see it one last time. And so she sent another Hogwarts ghost, who was not a ghost at the time, but the long-lost lover of Helena, the Bloody Baron. Yeah, the Bloody Baron was like Thurston for Helena, and she was not having any of it. And he is the one that killed her and then killed himself after what he'd done. So that's some dark backstory for you. Also, yeah, I love that it's like one single page, last one of the last chapters of the it's series, like a few Ro- lines. Yeah, J.K. Rowling's like, you know what? I probably have to explain who some of these people are. Meanwhile, the Fat Friar. <laughs> we get no backstory for the Fat Friar. We just know he's a Hufflepuff who died probably from eating. Anyway, the Ravenclaw diadem um, was hidden in a tree in Albania, but Harry recognizes Albania because we only ever hear about it from either like people fighting dragons or like Voldemort's like dark adventures himself. So Harry realizes, okay, yep, it is the diadem, and he comes to the conclusion that it is in the room of requirement. How does he come to that conclusion? Well, he thinks back to Tom Riddle, and when would have been the last time he was in the castle? That would have been when he was an adult who, at this point, had long since graduated but came back to ask Dumbledore for a job. The Defense Against the Dark Arts job. Yeah, so somewhere along the way, Harry thinks, Voldemort always thought he was so clever and always thought he was the only one who knew the castle's secrets. So he thought, well, the room of requirement, that must be a place Voldemort might go, um, thinking he's so, you know, above it all. And so lo and behold, they they go to room of requirement, and um, yeah, it's there. That's exactly where it is. The diadem is there. And so that brings us to um, goodbye number six, 
Goyle. So you know him as Gregory Goyle, best friend of Vincent Crabb and Draco Malfoy. Could you call them best friends? I don't know. I don't think they have those broken heart necklaces. Who, Crabb and Goyle? No, no, no. Crabb and Goyle along with Draco. Oh. He's definitely like using them. Right. I mean, Goyle and Crabb definitely like talk all this smack about Malfoy behind their back. They probably, oh, I would love to know more about their home life. You know, like did they keep in touch over the summer? Are I they from so. broken families? You know. Hey, there's a whole world to explore here, as we know. I know. So, obviously, the interesting thing about the film is that one of them is... There's no crab. Yeah, his Crab is nowhere to be seen. Yeah, so the actor who played crab, what, he was arrested for, like, growing pot? Yeah, he was arrested um, for drug-related charges. So, uh, insert Blaze Zabini to sort of round out the three. Yeah. Um, Which, I want to know so much more about Blaze. They just kind of plop him in there. Well, we know his mother was, like, a wealthy, beautiful witch. Yeah. (laughs) That's all we know. And he's part of, like, the slug club, but I want more. But... In the room of requirement, Crab dies, but you aren't allowed to... Uh, <laughs> Feel bad for him? Well, no, no, no. <laughs> because Crab isn't there, you can't just kill, like, Blaze, who is the, the the kid you don't know. Yeah, you need something of equal weight. Yeah, uh, you know, the audience doesn't know who this kid is, so you can't just kill him and have, like, feelings. So they decide to kill Goyle instead, which, good, because Goyle always looked meaner anyway. Crab looked like... Crab was like the Brandon Dassey to Goyle's... Um, Stephen Avery, although I think they're both innocent, so whatever. So in the room of requirement, one of them, Goyle or Crab, I think it's Crab. Yeah, it's Crab who uses fiend fire, um, which is one of the substances that can destroy Horcruxes, um, which Hermione knew, but she said she never dared to use it back when they were trying to think of how. Yeah, they didn't quite understand it at that point. Right. Well, they just light it up. They light the whole place up on fire. Yeah, it's Um, kind of hard to feel bad for crab in the book Goyle in the movie's death because he really did it to himself totally and I mean initially it started off with the Cruciatus curse but then when they see Hermione they go look at the mudblood of Vada Kedavra which is real real touchy but yeah. Malfoy to his credit this is his redemption this is when he says don't kill him don't kill him whether or not we believe that it's because he wanted Voldemort to be able to kill him which he says oh he's the one who wants to kill him I still also believe oh you know what Malfoy doesn't actually want to kill Harry. I don't think he wants to kill Harry. I think, like, I I think his actions here, it's a reasonable excuse. So let's say Harry loses out in the end. He can be like, oh, well, I was just, like, doing my part for you, Dark Lord. But I do think he genuinely wanted to save Harry because you see him coming around, like, at Malfoy Manor in part one. Yeah. And at the end of this film, when he, you know, runs off with his family, he doesn't want to be part of this dark force right we've already seen harry grant malfoy enough reprieves that we now know malfoy we're not worried we're i'm not at least we're not worried for malfoy doing anything to harry and of course uh in the book the fiend fire itself is just what kind of kills the the diadem like very conveniently it like touches it enough that it's like yeah it's done good for us but in the movie there's a great you know it's like a the basilisk escape. bang and... yeah the escape is awesome and then they kick it into the fiend fire which takes on Voldemort's face which also if you watch the film everyone knows that the fiend fire is all four of the Hogwarts houses there's the badger there's the lion there's a Snake, and there's the other one, the raven. (laughs) Eagle. Eagle, raven, raven, whatever. It's literally called Ravenclaw, so it's a raven. We also skipped over something, though, because uh, prior to the Room of Requirement, um, something else happened. We're going to call another goodbye, but we're not going to give it its own number, but we are going to call it uh, goodbye number 6B, Ron and Hermione's Innocence. (laughs) 
You make it sound so dirty. I know. Really, it's <laughs> and it's actually quite clean. It's a pretty nice looking chamber. In the book, they straight up disappear. But in the film, one of the benefits of seeing this on screen was that the film handled this so well. And it's a big, a big plus for the film. I know I, I know I can kind of trash it every now and then. but um, I like how they handled it. Yeah, they go down to the Chamber of Secrets to go get the basilisk fangs to... Uh, destroy the cup. Destroy Helga Hufflepuff's cup, which like... Good luck touching a cup with, like, a fang and, like, making it Right. But. One of my big pet peeves is that they turn the cup sideways in the movie. Wouldn't it be easier to, like, attack it from the top? In it? Like, in the actual container yeah. of the cup? Yeah. Like, I, I would just think it would that. slide away if you tried to, like, get it from the side. But right. But that's just me. Also, is it, like, the sheer touching <laughs> of it? I would be like, I would I would ruin so many basilisk fangs <laughs> by missing. I can I'm glad we're not tasked with destroying Horcrux's mark. For real. <laughs> but, so, of course, this is when they kiss in the movie. There's a little difference in the book because in the book, um, basically Harry only sees them when they finally come back with arms full of basilisk fangs. You know, they still destroyed the cup. It all happens sort of off page, if you will. Ron brings up the point that they still need to save the house elves. They're all down in the kitchen. And he's like, we can't have any more Dobbies. And this is the moment it all changes. J.K. Rowling literally writes... There was a clatter as the basilisk fangs cascaded out of Hermione's arms. Running at Ron, she flung them around his neck and kissed him full on the mouth. Ron threw away the fangs and broomstick he was holding and responded with such enthusiasm that he lifted Hermione off her feet. Like, when I think about what I want in a guy, it's funny, smart, handsome, and has, like, a deep love of house elves, right? Am I alone in that? (laughs) That's that's my, like, Tinder profile. Our mutual interest better be house elves. Um, oh, it's great. And Harry's like, is this the moment? And everybody's like, yeah, it is. But it's it's sweet. It's nice. But Mark, I feel like we haven't really ever gotten into this. But of course, like, Rowling came out way after the books and kind of regretted Ron and Hermione together. I mean, what do you think about that? Do you think that they were meant for each other? She regretted them? Uh, Rowling said, if I'm absolutely honest, distance has given me perspective on that. It was a choice I made for very personal reasons, not for reasons of credibility. Am I breaking people's hearts by saying this? I hope not. I wrote the Hermione-Ron relationship as a form of wish fulfillment. That's how it was conceived, really, for reasons that had very little to do with literature and far more to do with me clinging to the plot as I first imagined it. Hermione ended up with Ron. Because, of course, there are a lot of people who think, and this is me, this isn't a quote anymore. (laughs) A lot of people think that Harry and Hermione were better suited to each other, but I like Hermione and Ron together. I think it's like an opposites attract thing. They bring out different qualities in each other. Yeah. It's funny. Now that you say that, I do remember reading that quote. That like was a firestorm, like a fandom firestorm. People were like going at it. It was crazy. I respect her for saying it because I think she probably believes that she initially wanted them together and then by the very end of it didn't think they were actually that good of a match anymore, but had already you know, had not introduced a new love interest for Ron to really, to be the fan favorite in the same way that, you know, Ginny kind of became organically, you know, it it wouldn't have done us any service if, let's say we loved Lavender Brown in book six and Ron married her in book seven. Like, we need to have known Ron's significant other for multiple books, right? Right. I know what you're saying, but... Why does it have to end with a couple together? You know, like, why does every... It's like the whole happily ever after thing. But I, what I take issue with is I get that the years and time gave her, you know, time to sort of let it marinate and reflect yeah. on it. But I don't like that she's taking back her creative choices because it completely affected the way that I interpreted these books and movies. It was really? like... 
it felt like none of it was real. Like it was a dream or something. At yeah, least that portion. Or of like it. it was just pages on a book and then characters on a screen. It's crazy. It's no, I'm just kidding. Because <laughs> it is. Uh, <laughs> but I, I do understand what you mean. It's kind of like I mean? for anyone who really is invested in the relationship, like you don't want to hear like, oh, you know what? I regret it. Like that's one of like the, the three biggest things that happen in Harry Potter. One, he defeated Voldemort. Two, Ron and Hermione get married. It's like literally the second biggest thing that happens in in a seven book series. Yeah, like that's no small thing that she's taking back. And that's kind of the perfect segue into our next goodbye, number five, which is the deaths of Lavender, Fred, Tonks, Lupin, and Colin, and so many more that we don't see. Yeah, this isn't really like goodbye number five. This is goodbye like... I mean, there are like 50 goodbyes, actually. I don't know how many... What was the exact number of... Uh, deaths at the Battle of Hogwarts. I'm not sure about the exact number, but obviously it goes beyond what we're talking about here, but here are some notable ones. Um, And Lavender, as we talked about in week six, is interesting because we don't know if she's dead or not. Um, That's a whole big debate. And we actually tweeted out a poll from EW's Twitter. 45% of people said she lives and 55% said she dies. And that was out of more than a thousand votes just for some perspective. That's still too close. It's too close. It's like very divided. I mean, wait, 55 said she lives. 45% said she lives and 55% said she dies. I'm in the, she dies camp. Yeah, I think she dies. I'm also pretty convinced. I actually, when I was watching Deathly Hallows part two the other day, um, you can see straight up one of the Patil sisters and Trelawney burying what literally looks like lavender. So I, I'm pretty sure Well, she's it also dead, makes sense because we know that lavender loves divination and that she's friends Best with friends the with the sister. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. But we can't talk anymore about lavender. We gave her way too much time last week. <laughs> I know you'd never want to hear the name lavender brown again. Trust me. Unless it's whether or not she lived or died. But yeah, so at this point in the Battle of Hogwarts, Voldemort offers a one-hour armistice to bury the dead. He's freaking out that... uh Harry is getting these horcruxes, and so he calls his forces to retreat. Um, every drop of blood, magical blood spilled, is a terrible waste. So with that, we kind of learn who's gone, right? So we learn Lavender's gone. We learn that Professor Lupin, Remus Lupin, has been killed by Dolohov. We learn that Tonks, his wife and recent mother, has been killed by Bellatrix Lestrange. Lavender is mauled by Fenrir Greyback. Colin Creevy has been killed. And we see poor Oliver Wood, like, has Colin hunched over his shoulder because he's so small. Also, Oliver Wood, thanks for coming back. Love you. Love you, babe. And then you get, of course, Fred Weasley, which, you know, this is sort of the biggie, probably the biggest person since Dobby, of course. And, yeah, this is just uh, I remember this one didn't register for me until by this point in the book who everyone's dying left and right there's so much chaos mm-hmm. that then when fred dies you just think wait did did that just happen like it, it, the way she wrote it it was you know the ghost of his last laugh etched on his face and you think did he did did she just kill fred fred weasley like did that literally just happen it's crazy Rowling has started tweeting apologizing for deaths that she did on the Battle of Hogwarts, and she said Fred was actually the worst for her. But I think because you're breaking up that couple, you're breaking. You're not only breaking up the Weasley family. It's different if you killed off Percy. It's different if you killed off Bill and Charlie. To kill off one of the twins, you're killing one half of them. God, what a. I mean, I definitely, I definitely see your point, but I, I think Lupin was the one that kind of hit me the most, and I think it's similar. Like when I first read the book, watched the movie, it didn't hit me as hard. But when you sort of read what Rowling has said about it, how it was about 
kind of how war leaves people motherless and fatherless and it's sort of yeah. a reflection of Harry being an orphan now Teddy their son is it's a really sad mirror it's, be- it's a beautifully sad mirror it, it absolutely is I will say I don't think Tonks and Lupin got the love they deserved in book or movie you know in movie of course we barely see their hands touching um, they, they aren't touching and it's it's heartbreaking but even in the in the book it's kind of just he just happens to see them there you know, they don't really get their last hurrahs that I think a lot of people did want for them. But then again, that's the, the truth of war. It's not like everybody right. gets these nice gift-wrapped goodbyes. Um, anyway, so several other people die. A lot of unidentified Hogwarts uh, students. There's also a teacher who dies who nobody's sure who it is. But the theory is it's either like Professor Vector, Sinistra, Professor Babbling, or Madame Pince. But because we never saw them... We're always like, TBD. we're like, who is that? Who did who, like, do we care about the like arithmetic teacher? Like, I don't know <laughs> if we do, but anyway, so that is, that is pretty sad. So goodbye, number five and beyond to all of our beloved characters here before we get into the heavy hitters, the, the real the heavy real hitters. Heavy so hitters. no offense to Fred Weasley, but, um, but this is when like, the sort of constant tears turn into full-on blubbering. <laughs> so this is number four, Goodbye, in Deathly Hallows Part 2, Severus freaking Snape. And this is, like, such a loaded... We could talk about this for hours, so let's try to run through this. Book versus movie. In the movie, it's down at the boathouse that Harry has this vision of Voldemort talking to Snape. In the book, it's at the Shrieking Shack, which holds far more significance but I understand why they didn't go there. It's a um, little more of a trek. It's much more of a trek. It takes you completely out of Hogwarts. It's totally unnecessary. So for the, all intents and purposes, we're in the boathouse right now. Voldemort has Nagini in like this weird bubble cage. It's kind of like a protective sphere. If you saw Fantastic Beasts, it's the same kind of thing that the Obscurus was kept in. Oh, in that's interesting. Newt suitcase. Yeah, and that's how Voldemort, upon realizing he has to kill Snape because the Elder Wand technically answers to him, even though it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, You think you know, but you don't. Yeah, so he uh, sends Nagini, basically sends Nagini's, like, death bubble onto Snape's, like, head and shoulders and then says kill. Like, it's horrifying, and I can understand why they did not do that in the movie. I, okay. Just a simple snake bite in the movie. (laughs) I understand why Snape can't, immediately die via like Avada Kedavra for instance because he needs to give Harry the tears for the pensive and all that which we'll talk about in a sec but what I don't understand is if Snape is one of Voldemort's most loyal followers as he says to him like why give him such a brutal death right you should have just Avada Kedavra'd him why why isn't that like the more respectful thing to do I mean Voldemort doesn't care but it's just like this man killed Dumbledore for you. Like, come on, yeah, bro. For sure. Also, wouldn't you want to, if you're trying to gain the power of the wand, gain the allegiance of a wand that a wizard has, wouldn't it make more sense for you to do it yourself? Yeah, right? with like, is magic? Nagini Ra- the true owner right. of the Elder Wand Does now? Nagini have the Elder Wand? Literally. <laughs> like, maybe she does. She's just been like, yep, I'm a wizard now, bitches. Anyway, yeah, so poor. That's a good point, though. Snape didn't deserve that. You know, I always wanted Voldemort to just disarm Snape. Like, that could have done the trick, but it was just I too far he, gone like, at this yeah, point. He, he didn't believed. want to take any risk. No risk whatsoever, yeah. So Snape lays there dying. Voldemort goes away. 
Harry kind of comes to uh, in it, it's uh, he's kind of he can't even explain why he does it. He's just he feels drawn to he him. He just knows, and I I think that moment is so nice because at this point he hasn't seen the memories, he doesn't know Snape's motivations, but it's like he can just sense that Snape isn't the bad guy here. Yeah, it's like in, in the book. I think the phrase directly was like he doesn't know what came over him, but like he just felt that he had to go up and and uh, go to Snape, and then yeah, he's crying something not. Other than blood, he's crying, you know, ponzi of tears, which, like, how do you kind of choose, like, you know what, I'm going to let these go right now. Like, does anyone who dies kind of have those same, uh, like, do their memories all flow out in teardrops? Uh, you know, like, what's the what's know. the choice there? I don't know. But I... um, anyway, so, you know, we get them. Hermione luckily has, like, a flask. And um, we get to Snape's flashback tale in the ponzi in Dumbledore's office. There's a lot. There's a lot it's, to unpack it's here. So, it's so heartbreaking. Yeah. But basically, sort of long story short. Yeah. Um, in flashback, you see that Snape knew Lily, Harry's mother, as a kid, and he loved her deeply. And you see him sort of being pushed aside by James, like James is making moves on Lily, and he spent his whole life loving her. He did. You know? It's so even when he doesn't have her anymore, he still loves her so much so that when she does die at Voldemort's hand, he devotes his life to Dumbledore's service now as a spy because of the betrayal of, you know, I mean, Snape did turn to the Dark Lord at first, but then after that betrayal, after Lily's death, Snape becomes a double agent because he loves this woman and wants to protect her son for his entire life. It's crazy. So you do see some key flashbacks in the book that also help illuminate um, the differences here in the story. You know, you see Snape suggesting uh, the idea of identical potters to Mundungus Fletcher to take to the order to get Harry safely to the borough at the beginning of the year. You see him accidentally sectum sempering George when that curse was meant for a Death Eater during that flight. You see him sending the sword to Harry. You see him sending his Patronus, which is a doe, which is Lily's Patronus to Harry. You just sort of see all these pieces together. But most damning of all, you see a couple things. You see Dumbledore. You kind of see the truth of Dumbledore. This is the most despicable Dumbledore gets because Snape is horrified when Dumbledore reveals that Harry needs to die, that he has been marked for death since day one, and that he has been raising him to die at the right moment like a pig for slaughter. In that moment, you despise Dumbledore, whether or not you like Michael Gambon. You just you hate the character for a second because you think, "Wow, how dare you? How like I I can't believe it." And you love Snape for seeing all that he's done, the lengths that he's taken to protect Harry, and the way that he reacts to this revelation from Dumbledore. Yeah, it's wild. So, there, obviously, there's so much more to this than we really do have the time to get into. But um, Lord knows that Lily Snape backstory is one that uh has a lot of fans debating whether or not it redeems him, whether or not they think what is revealed in this chapter is enough to redeem a character who has been kind of a jerk for literally seven years or not. I think it not. absolutely redeems him. Yeah, I, I always went back and forth. I always hated Snape so much I mean, I wasn't willing to forgive him immediately. Like, if he wanted to protect Harry, he still could have been nice for five years. <laughs> right, but he I didn't do, have to I be... He didn't have to be so terrible to him but part of it is so that people didn't 
know. So you understand, right. like, of course, you're not going to suspect the guy who, you know, gives Harry a hard time in potions class, among, right. like, other greater things. So, yeah, Snape is, I mean, Snape is truly heroic. Um, and, you know, Harry goes on to name his kid after him, which is kind of an unfortunate name, but still love it. And oh. so here ends the story of Severus Snape. Obviously, there's more to talk about, but now I feel myself getting even just, like, more somber as we, like, get further in. Do you um, want a fun fact? Is it fun? <laughs> Young Snape in the flashbacks is, like, it was recently kind of broke the internet because he's hot now. Yeah. Guess who tweeted that? <laughs> this guy. <laughs> Are you the one that broke Yeah. That? You're telling me my own news? <laughs> Also, no, there, if you if you Google it, like, there have been every, like, six months, somebody will, like, write up a post that's like, did you know Young Snape is hot now? But I was watching this, like, a few months ago, and I was like, oh, he's kind of hot now. And it kind of went a little viral, but whatever. I'm thirsty. Anyway. Well, congrats, Mark. Thanks. Number three. Number three goodbyes in Deathly Hallows Part 2 is none other than Harry Potter himself. This is super sad. I can't talk about this one too long because I'll get sad. In the movie... Harry realizes what he has to do after Snape's uh, memory flashbacks and um, goes to the Forbidden Forest to give himself up to Voldemort, realizing that he is now a Horcrux. So he happens to see Hermione and Ron in the castle, even though that doesn't happen in the book, because in the book, it's Neville that is his sort of last goodbye, which is so interesting, especially because we've talked about whether, like how Neville factored into this, like, Korth, yeah, like group of three. Yeah, you know, I think to me was, that gives yeah. him more weight than we ever. He was kind the of perfect gave him one. For. He was the perfect one to see Harry in the book. Um, and Harry says, "Kill the snake." He actually doesn't know if Ron and Hermione are even alive anymore. He just says, "Neville, kill the snake." Um, which, oh god, I. It's I'm interesting not, too because I mean, of course, there's that whole theory about how it could have been Neville. So you the have prophecy, right? You have right, Harry so. doing his part and Neville doing his part, kind of on equal, not equal scale, but equally. They're both very important acts that they're doing. Yeah. In the movie, it's Ron and Hermione uh, that Harry says goodbye to, although um, that's actually a lie because he only says bye to Hermione. He and Ron have, like, no exchange, no emotions. I never, never for the life of me have I understood that choice, that directorial choice, that screenplay choice, why Harry hugs Hermione. I mean, is it like it was just too painful? But it was just like literally I'm hugging Hermione not even not even a single nod to Ron. I don't get it. I don't I, get it. No, I don't either. So that's a big negative for the movie. But um, I am about to give a good positive because Harry gets to the Forbidden Forest and discovers that he still has a snitch in his pocket that Dumbledore gave him in his will that says, I open at the close. Harry realizes this is the close. And in the movie, he says, I'm ready to die. In the book, he says, I'm about to die. Uh, and he kisses Very different. It. Very different. And I'm glad they chose I like the, the ready choice. I like the movie a lot better, yeah. And then um, in come all of his loved ones. Uh, James, Lily, Sirius, and Remus. It's such a sad, but I think really beautiful moment. I mean, you have Lily who's telling him that he's been brave. Sirius saying dying is quicker than falling asleep. Uh, James says he's nearly there. And Remus, you know, Harry goes to Remus and says, I didn't want people to die for me. I didn't want any of you to die for me. And Remus says that people will tell his son what he and his mother died for. And you kind of see the purpose of their deaths. Yeah. it. Is, I mean, it's really beautiful. And also you just know that they're going to be together soon, which is nice. Um, and I will say that's the scene that just makes me cry every single time. No other scene makes me cry like that. Um, but big, big, big plus for the movie here is when Harry at the very end says, stay close to me. And Lily says, 
always. Ugh. Same camera framing as Snape, same intonation. It it was that is not something that happens in the book and is a choice that I think the movie can really pat itself on the back for. Yeah, no, it it fully added to that yeah. experience. You'll stay with me until the end. And he won't be able to see you. No. Stay close to me. Always. So Harry gives himself up to Voldemort, and of course. Um, it is painful and heartbreaking, but also brave. Especially as, when you see Hagrid screeching. Yeah, as Voldemort kills him. Uh, Avada Kedavra, flash of green light, and suddenly Harry Potter is dead. He wakes up in a bright white room, um, kind of surrounded by white mist. It's a lot of white. It's just, it's a whole lot of white, and I'm not just talking about students at Hogwarts. <laughs> And Harry at first doesn't know where it is. Uh, He thinks it's in the Room of Requirement for a second. He thinks maybe he's in the Great Hall. He's naked, by the way. (laughs) Not a choice in the movie, but he's naked. Maybe they figured they did enough damage in part one. Yeah, or in Equus (laughs) on Broadway. Yeah, this is the King's Cross chapter. Harry realizes he's in King's Cross. And this is like, I I know many people, many friends of mine, consider this their favorite chapter. Um, This is deep philosophy. This is a real... I don't even know how to talk about the chapter. I mean, this is just where sort of the juice and the meat of Harry Potter is. This is also where I think the most famous line is and the most beautiful line and the most important line. But I won't get to that just yet because Dumbledore's there. Harry is at a crossroads. Literally, he's at like you know, an a train actual, station. Yeah, he could go um, anywhere. On whether to go back or to live. Essentially, he has the ability to live because Voldemort, in his vanity, took Harry's blood. And so he has tethered himself um, as long as he lives, Harry can live if he wants, um, which is kind of a reversal from what that prophecy said, which is the ultimate irony. Yeah, Dumbledore gives a few answers. He kind of fills in some blanks that, yes, Harry is descended from, you know, one of the Peverell brothers who had the Deathly Hallows. Dumbledore talks about his relationship with Grindelwald. He talks about how he had the invisibility cloak the night James died. And that's something he always regretted, actually. Um, because Harry said, no, he, he wouldn't have lived even if he had it. And Dumbledore, said, Dumbledore kind of just sort of agrees and sighs, but he doesn't really believe it. And then Dumbledore directs Harry whether or not to go back. In the book, it's a little more direct. It's a little more... Like telling him to go back rather yeah, than if you choose to re- him. If you choose to return, there's a chance that he may be finished for good. I cannot promise it. That's what he says in the book. Whereas in the movie, it almost seems like... Not doesn't really care whether Harry kind of goes on or. I think or he not. just trusts Harry to make the right choice. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a nice it's a beautiful scene in the movie, beautiful in its sort of cleanliness. Um, beautiful beyond that little bloody Voldemort that we get a nice, nice yeah, look at. <laughs> that if you ever want to see Mark waking up on a Sunday after going out, <laughs> just just fast forward to that shot. Um, when Harry's about to wake up, it brings us to um, what I think is the single most important exchange. In the entire Harry Potter series, it represents not only the story for Harry, but the story for the reader, the kid who has grown up reading these seven books because it says everything. Professor, 
Is this all real? Or is it just happening inside my head? Of course it's happening inside your head, Harry. Why should that mean that it's not real? That's all I want. That's all like that. That's our experience. That's our experience. That is the most beautiful thing J.K. Rowling could have ever written. And Harry decides to wake back up. So, And this is so important, too, because when he does come back, it's they head back to Hogwarts and it's Hagrid who carries him out of the forest. And that's another beautiful sort of mirror moment for me. You yeah. Know, with Hagrid bringing Harry to Privet Drive in the beginning and even being the one to take him away from Privet Drive in the Battle of the Seven Potters. And Rowling has even said that that was the moment that kept Hagrid safe because she knew she wanted him to be the one to carry Harry out of there. So she couldn't kill him off before. She couldn't yeah. kill him off because of that. And I just yeah. think it's so nice and sad, but beautifully done. Yeah. So, you know, Harry wakes up. Voldemort uh, uses the Cruciatus curse on him to just, like, test that he's dead. He, like, shakes him around a lot, which is really scary. Ultimately, it's Narcissa Malfoy who confirms that Harry's dead, even though she's not. He's not. Now, here's something I never really understood. Narcissa is sent over to go check that Harry's dead. She gets down there, puts her hand on his chest, I guess feels his heart. She whispers, is Malfoy dead or alive? Mm-hmm. And Harry whispers, he's alive. I, I don't understand the logic here of, well, does that mean Harry saved him? Like, how, how does how does that in and of itself demand the betrayal of the Dark Lord? Unless I it's think- because Malfoy, knowing Malfoy is alive, Narcissa, knowing Harry survived the curse, in that moment must know, oh, shit, like, Voldemort's done. You know, the same way when Harry does drop out of Hagrid's arms later and all the Death Eaters flee. Yeah, no. That's Narcissa's that. that's Narcissa's moment of realization of, oh my God, he survived again? <gasps> Uh-oh, I know it's going to happen, so let me find out right now. Let me get on it. Like, she just makes a million choices in, in that one moment, yeah. and I think it's incredible what happens. Totally. And, and I also think that has something to do with the Malfoy's allegiance never fully being with Voldemort. But I do think it's interesting that they chose her of all people to go over to Harry because as we've talked about, she's not even a Death Eater. She hangs with them. Totally. What if it was Lucius? Glad it wasn't Bellatrix. I don't know if Lucius would have made the same choice because I think he's so much of a coward. And we've talked a lot about how Narcissa's love, maternal love for Draco has been the guiding force in her life. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, I mean, here, Narcissa's maternal love Saves Harry, just like Lily's love saved Harry. It's interesting. And then we'll, we're going to get to kind of, I, I mean, now we're sort of in goodbye number two is, I want to say, Bellatrix. And that would bring us to Molly, whose love also wins because uh, they go on this victory march with Harry back to the castle. There's that huge scene in the courtyard. <sighs> How do I even break this down? Huge scene in the courtyard. Neville's got a speech. Harry leaps out of the arms, Death Eaters flee, and suddenly the battle is raging on again. In the book, it's fascinating because there's really only two battles and they both take place uh, right there in like the Great Hall. It's Voldemort uh, dueling with McGonagall, Slughorn, and Kingsley Shacklebolt. And it's Bellatrix dueling with Hermione, Ginny, and Luna. Really fascinating groups that are that are dueling mm-hmm. there. But, um, of course, it's Mrs. Weasley who kind of runs in and says, Not my daughter, you bitch. Amazing line. I know that you love Dumbledore's line, 
but is this not the best? <laughs> well, this one this one doesn't exactly represent my years reading Harry Potter. Like, what did you learn? Not my daughter, you bitch. Like, it doesn't sum it all up uh, but quite as well. We're we're talking about love, and J.K. Rowling has written about love and mother's love and how that takes different forms. And this is just another incredible example. And it's also look, it's just a badass moment for Molly Weasley that she needed and deserved. And totally, God, it was incredible. Incredible. Bellatrix is dead. Mother's love beats devoted love, uh, crazy cult love. So suck it, Bellatrix. Sorry. And it's also at this time that everybody else is joining this battle. The centaurs have come after Voldemort taunted them in the forest. Grop is there. Charlie Weasley is there. Other family members and friends of Hogwarts students who have stayed behind to fight have all showed up, as have shopkeepers from Hogsmeade. There's one last thing that was left out of the movie that... I always wanted to see. It's the flaming sorting hat that's put on Neville's head. That was just such a horrifying thing to happen. Totally. And that is kind of, that's what makes Harry fall out of Hagrid's arms in the first place uh, in the book. Uh, But he takes the invisibility cloak. So another big moment that the movie really did change. But that leaves just Voldemort and Harry. Neville has killed the snake in this kerfuffle, uh, he kills it a little more dramatically in the movie, whereas in the book yeah, he just like, like the, straight up slices his head off right in front of everyone. The snake is about to kill Ron and Hermione in the movie, and Neville stops it at the very last minute. Yeah, it's uh, it's just more, just a lot more straightforward in the book of like, yep, it's uh, Neville pulls out the sword and kills the snake. <laughs> it just kind of happens. But that leaves us with just Harry and Voldemort, and um, what you have to know is that in the book everyone is watching. Whereas in the movie, it's just them one-on-one. There's some really fascinating wordplay here. Remember that they both try to psychologically manipulate one another, right? So Voldemort tries to downplay Harry's accomplishments. He owes them all up to accident, you know? Right, which is something that Harry struggled with as well. So he's definitely tapping into all of those concerns that he's already had. For a long time, Harry has said, oh, I I didn't do anything. Like, it was all accident. It was all luck. It was other people helping me. Now, Harry believes I am a hero. I am about to defeat him. Like, I have done it. And it's, and he earned every second of those, uh, of those, uh, Totally, totally agree. He says, it wasn't an accident when my mother died to save me, when I decided to fight in the graveyard. And it wasn't an accident. I I didn't defend myself tonight and survive and return to fight again. Like, he is owning his heroism, and it's amazing. And he's also calling him Riddle which is his version of manipulation, his version of making Voldemort seem normal, seem mortal, which is the one thing Voldemort fears above anything is death. And he is saying, you are a mortal. Well, and I mean, we've seen Dumbledore call Voldemort Tom Riddle as well. And with Dumbledore gone, Harry's kind of stepping in and filling that place and being the only person now alive who Voldemort is actually kind of afraid of an equal to yeah he's saying i'm your equal i'm gonna bring you back to like you're i'm bringing you down to me you know and then he also gets one last little jab in and says snape wasn't yours um which voldemort uh, we, he we, his reaction is simply stunned silence which i love i just love that idea that you've stunned him into silence <laughs> like, talk about a burn yeah and then um they fight and uh it's a quick battle between avada kedavra and expelliarmus Gotta love that Harry chooses Expelliarmus. Um, because he's a good guy. He's not the guy, guy, as we've talked about before, to commit evil, to prevent other evil. He always makes a good choice. Yeah, although he does use the Cruciatus curse when he needs it. So I would think, like, well, that cadaver right. you kind of need right now. Like, how? But still, but he, Expelliarmus he gets knows, him the Elder Wand. He knows 
all about the allegiance of the Elder Wand. Yeah. So, I mean, but I, I, I don't think that's why he Expelliarmus is him, like, to get the wand. But he does know. I mean, he just loves Expelliarmus. Let's be real. Like, that's the only <laughs> thing he knows. He knows that and, like, the bat bogey hex. So, Voldemort's dead. He turns into lots of little dandruff flakes. Little flakes. And, um, which, you know what? I know that's not realistic, it, none of it is, but I know that's not like how one would what? die. You mean this magical world isn't in, realistic? In the book, he just kind of falls down dead, um, whereas Bellatrix and Voldemort both blow up into pieces. You know what? For cinematic purposes, I get it. And that's that. The 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 sun blazes through their celebrations. Um, Harry, who has not slept in basically like two days, right? essentially uh, he still has to shake hands. He hugs people. He speaks to the wounded. He comforts the mourning. He is their savior. I, I mean, it's the way she writes this this victory is just incredible, and you can feel the hope, and you feel the hope. It, it's the people who were imperialist all along the the country. The reports are coming in that they're okay now, and are, they're coming out of their spells. And Kingsley Shacklebolt is now the new minister, and Azkaban is back under control, and. Everything is shaping up and in the course of the next few hours, which take place in just like a paragraph. And Harry now has the Elder Wand and he goes to Dumbledore's office and uh, speaks to the portrait of Dumbledore one last time. Well, the first time, but also his last time um, to kind of figure out what to do next. He decides to keep the invisibility cloak. Which he yeah, self- that's like his youth. You yeah, know? he ha- he's had that since Sorcerer's Stone. He's had it the whole time. Yeah, he and it was his dad's. Yeah, he doesn't find it to be a selfish move to go after the Hallows because um, he has tossed the Resurrection Stone, doesn't need it, and doesn't want it. And then he says the Elder One is going to put back in its place, but before he gets rid of it, he uses the Elder One to repair his own wand, and he just knows it's fixed. Even though you can't actually repair your own wand, it's the Elder Wand. Like, it's the most powerful wand. It's got to be able to do something. Right. But, yeah, he does get rid of it because well, the basically movie, he, he doesn't, snaps it. He snaps it in half. He doesn't want anybody to have that power. <sighs> He's such a Gryffindor. Such, such a, a Gryffindor. Gryffindor. <laughs> Even though I love when Ron is like... Ron, Ron is, is like a, Gryffindor with hints of Slytherin. Right. Ron <laughs> like, is always like, why are we dying for Malfoy saving him in the room of requirement? Why are you breaking the Elder Wand? It's the most powerful one on Earth. Like, Ron is kind of like not really Gryffindor <laughs> in that sense. But still, this this just brings us to the last shot where Harry, Ron, and Hermione are standing on the bridge. And I honestly, I that gets me. I it, And it's always whenever I'm watching it on like ABC Family, it's always like it fades out. And then it's like a commercial for like Honey Nut Cheerios, you know? It's like I, I need a moment to process this. Get this away just from ended. me, B. Yeah, it just <laughs> ended. It's crazy to me. So it's it's wild. I, I, I cry every time. And so that's that. That is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part two. Of course, there's there is one last thing to talk about before we get to our guest, Ivana Lynch, who played Luna Lovegood, and that is the epilogue. Yeah, nineteen. 19- Nineteen years later, you see Harry, Jenny, Ron, and Hermione dropping off their respective kids at the Hogwarts Express, and Harry has this whole little chat with his son, Albus Severus. The kid's very concerned about being sorted into Slytherin. Harry tells him how brave Snape was, and it would be basically an honor to be sorted into Slytherin, but you can make your own choices. And It's just, I think, a nice extra nod to all the things that Snape did because you really only have this book to appreciate how brave and 
crucial he was to all of this. Yeah, well, and and you just see the lasting memory that uh, Harry has of Snape and Dumbledore. Both men flawed. Both men have screwed Harry over in the past, but both men died for him um, to do what he needed to do, and he honors their memory in the right way. A lot of fans, I think, debate whether or not you know they like what happened in the epilogue. You know, they like the name Albus Severus and and who married who and this and that. You know, I think we are so much better off for having the epilogue than if it didn't. Than if it just ended after book seven. Forgetting all the things we know now, we have all of Cursed Child to talk about in the coming weeks, which will it picks up right at the epilogue. So. Don't worry, we're not skimping on the epilogue right now. But, you know, even though we know so many other fun facts about Harry Potter now and J.K. Rowling has filled in the world, without the epilogue, we would have had nothing for years. We would have had nothing for a solid few years um, until until she got on Twitter. You and know? I think it's important to have, too, just because obviously, like, before the epilogue at the end when they're on the bridge, the three of them together, you see, you get a sense that everything is going to be normal. But here you see that it actually is and it's another mirror of when Harry was going to Hogwarts for the very first time himself. But the big difference is that Harry didn't have anybody who sat down with him um, That's true. and kneeled, knelt down and, and It's similar, him up. but better. Yeah, it's better. It's exactly what Harry should have had. Um, and now we know he'll be okay and we know Albus will be okay. For now, we are going to kick this episode over to our interview of the week with the incomparable Ivana Lynch who was just like you. She was just a fan, auditioned for the role of Luna Lovegood in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, got it, nailed the part, and changed the Harry Potter fandom forever. So without further ado, Ivana Lynch. Tell us, what question are you asked the most, either by fans or, or anybody who's involved in the series? What question? I mean, people always ask, do I miss it? And people always ask, they're always keen to know that we all keep in touch. <laughs> you know, people, they, they don't want to lose this idea that you're all like best friends, <laughs> um, that it would ever fall apart. So yeah, those are the two main ones. It's interesting because like, I'm like, of course, you know, what can I say to those questions? Of course, yes. Like there's, of course, there's always be nostalgia there, but um, yeah, you move on. <laughs> When when someone does bring up Harry Potter to Havana, do you have an immediate day or or memory that you kind of just quickly snap to? Um hmm, no, <laughs> not really. Um no, honestly when people say the words Harry Potter, my first thought and reaction is I always think of the books. Because like for years before the movies I was just Harry Potter was just book to me and it was that little world and um, it, it it still doesn't uh, it, I still don't as much equate the movies with that world that I first found you know um, mm-hmm. it, ha- it has something really private and special to me that even from working on the movies that hasn't been taken away so yeah so uh, being a fan of the books how do you think that affected the way that you approached you know the way that you played uh, Luna and and just being in the film series in general um, well, it was more than just a job to me. It was so precious, you know. I, I and I think because I wasn't a professional actress before I, I got that role. I, I was, well, I was fourteen. <laughs> I mean, definitely in Ireland, it's unusual to be professional at that age. Um, but I, I, I just, 
that and that was why I went after that character because I I was such a huge fan that I felt like that this is an important part. She's a, such an important person to me. She's helped me through so much that I felt I just wanted to protect her spirit and preserve her spirit and, and not let it be... Because, you know, there are so many actors, and, and not that this is a bad thing, but that it will just be an email sent to their inbox, and they'll be like, okay, I'll, I'll try on this person for today. And for me, it was just so much more. It was like, this this character has such a message to get out into the world that it's not about me, it's not about my career, it's not about um, just any of that stuff that you do tend to think of as an actor. It's like, she had to come first. And and I really think that's how I dealt with the whole thing. Like, that's how I didn't feel the nerves or the pressure of of uh, being in a major movie franchise, because it was all about Luna for me, and I was able to get out of my own way for that purpose. Can you expand on that a little bit? I mean, what was her message that you wanted to get out there, and what was it about her spirit that you wanted to preserve? Yeah, uh, it was that that I feeling about her that Luna that she was completely authentic and herself, uh, and her own self was so weird and so um, odd to everyone else. It made everyone uncomfortable, but she just wore her oddness with with so much self-acceptance and, and, and grace, I think, you know, she, she never, um, cause I, I was definitely, I was an odd, I felt like an odd teenager growing up. And I felt like there were a lot of bits about myself that I wanted to hide that I wasn't comfortable with. And every time I would read Luna, I would just feel this enormous relief. Like here was someone who was like so much more odd than I, but who, who didn't question it, who just accepted it about herself. And, and, and the way she did it, it made it that, it made it that however she was was perfect. And yeah, I just felt always, you know how like with certain people, you'll feel uncomfortable around them because maybe they're too much in their head or or they're not comfortable in themselves, they're judging themselves. And Luna just doesn't, she never looks at people with a critical eye. I think she always looks at people and at creatures and at animals to, to like want to know more, like with, with love and acceptance and, and like, loving the weird little things about every person and I always think that that that's what it's that attitude that helps people flourish like it, it I mean it's the same thing with teachers if you ever have a teacher who who looks at you and sees your you know your inner beauty or your inner light and they nourish that that's when it grows and I felt yeah I just wanted to bring that positive spirit into the world. J.K. Rowling said that Luna is the anti-Hermione. I think she described her as that once. Did you, did, do you agree? I mean, do you think there are parts of Luna that actually are kind of like Hermione, or do you see them as really true polar opposites? Um, I don't know about polar opposites. I think their their worldview is, is yeah, it's, that's, that would be where they completely disagree. And it's, uh, there's a passage in the book, it's one of my favorite passages, it's between Luna's father and Hermione, where they're talking about, like, possibility where he he's talking about the things he believes in and Hermione's like what how on earth can you believe in that when when there's nothing to say that it exists and his view is well there's nothing to say that it doesn't exist <laughs> and I just <laughs> love that like that I think Luna's her whole philosophy is like limitless possibilities there are no answers you know everything is in color and none of it is in there's nothing black or white you know and I think Hermione finds this safety and the security in knowledge, in, in accumulating facts and knowing 
searching for truth, you know? Mm-hmm. And Luna's just way more open-minded. Like, she would, she's a, a complete artist, you know, in, in, in her, in her, um, yeah, in her worldview that she, she doesn't, she doesn't need to know. She doesn't really, she, she's curious, but she doesn't need that kind of uh, assurance that Hermione needs. And, um, yeah, so in in that sense. But then again, you know, they're both very loving, kind, compassionate people. So there's, there, there's common ground there. <laughs> I also want to ask about um, Luna's friendship with Ginny. I feel like that is a relationship that we don't get that much of in the book. And yet I feel like that's always such an implicit thing. Like we, they're the same year at Hogwarts. We know they've hung out. They're in the same big, big seven. Yeah. Um, what, what's your take on that Luna and Ginny? Um, well, I, I, I think that like Luna's, she is, she is sort of fragile and, and delicate. She's not like this force the way Ginny is. And I, I think, um, yeah, I just imagine Ginny like she's a she's a true Gryffindor. She's pure Gryffindor, very very fierce and very loyal. And um, and I think she she just sees past all the things that that block people from getting to know Luna. And she's um, yeah, just so so fiercely loving and appreciative of her. Um, and I, I I think Luna needs that in people. She just needs that acceptance. And I, I don't know, I, I guess for Ginny, I don't know from her side, but I suppose Luna doesn't, she, she's, she's at ease. It's, it's the same thing that Harry sees in her, that, that she's uh, spiritual and, and sees the bigger picture, and uh, Ginny's quite an intense person. Um, I don't know, I, I would like to explore that more. What do you guys think? Um, Molly, you, what, what do you think? Luna and Ginny together? I mean, I say go for it. Why not? More girl power. Well, I just feel like they were always, they had to have been friends, you know? I mean, I just, I, I feel like we never got to really explore that friendship, and I, I imagine that was just a really strong bond. They were. As I say, like, I think Ginny was protective of her. Like, I think they just, they, they just get each other. Yeah. They're, they both, you know, they have the same values. I imagine Ginny's kind of amused by her, but she sees that she's, I think Ginny, here's what it is, I think Ginny's so, uh, she's just such a no-bullshit person, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Am I allowed to say that on the podcast? Oh, yeah, you go for it. <laughs> okay, yeah. But like, she, she doesn't... I, I think Ginny sees through people, and she doesn't have time for, like, fakeness or, or just pretend. And, and Luna's completely herself. I think Ginny appreciates that and wants to surround herself by those people. Because she is. Ginny's cutthroat and fierce, and um, there's a lot of fakers, phonies <laughs> out there. Even yeah. Totally. <laughs> Did- did you uh, did you hang out a lot with Bonnie on set? Like, who were you chummiest with um, between takes? And you know, yeah. as you went through the process of filming, who were you closest with? Um, yeah, I hung out with Bonnie a lot. Uh, probably Katie Lung. She would have been my closest friend. Who played Cho Chang? Um, and because we were Ravenclaw, Ravenclaw Power, exactly Ravenclaw Power. Although it's funny, both of us got tested for Pottermore, and we both got Gryffindor. <gasps> <laughs> so we're like, yeah, we're we're Gryffindors, I guess. Um, but yeah, she, me and Katie are like, she she's very into books, and um, so am I. And uh, just we were both we both came on it in a same sort of way through open auditions. She had her open audition for number four, and then I did it for number five, and. I think we both felt a little bit on the outside, like not, um, not you know, we hadn't been there all these years and been through everything with everyone. So we were still kind of new. 
um, yeah, we bonded over that, and then and, and then I was close with Bonnie, um, and that, and Bonnie definitely has that same vibe that Ginny has, that just so uh, strong in herself, self assured, and and yeah, it's it's deep, and I was definitely always attracted to that. Um, because I think I felt more insecure growing up, and especially being on the films. Um, totally. So I love that about her. And also Scarlett Byrne, who played Pansy, who is still one of my best friends. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Ravenclaw um, Slytherin, Slytherin crossover action. I know, I know. It's funny, I've noticed lately that a lot of my closest friends are Slytherins. Um, I, you know what? I always said I was a Slytherin. Really? I feel like we are we are coming out of the woodwork. Like, we're, not every Slytherin was a Death Eater. Some Slytherins were just like Slytherin people, and I feel like I'm a Slytherin person. I'm not a Death Eater. I just like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I've noticed with Slytherins, it's like it doesn't mean that they don't they're not as lovely or they don't love as much, but, but they are. I find at the end of the day, quite self oriented. I think <laughs> they are always number one. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> kind of. <laughs> my experience with Slytherins, they can be lovely and they can love you and be lovable, but when it comes push comes to shove, they are number one. <laughs> I don't know. Would you say that about yourself? I, I mean, I think so, and I think Molly's laughing. I'm, I'm laughing because I also took the Pottermore quiz, and I am a Slytherin. So. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Well, part of me is like, wow, that's so nice of her to say. I'm like, oh, my God, am I too self-absorbed? <laughs> no, it's not, it's not a bad thing. But, like, because you're so, you're so ambitious and you're focused. But I find that, like, Gryffindors lead with their hearts. And, like, we make mistakes. But my Slytherin friends will sometimes, yeah, they'll, they'll, just, they'll just take more sensible option. They'll take the option that is beneficial to their life rather than their emotions, you know? Which is a good thing. I think you need those people to keep some sort of, sort of law and order. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Aveda, do you ever um do you ever find yourself like when you are talking to friends about Harry Potter reverting to Luna? Like, do you ever kind of pull out the Luna card if you get into like a <laughs> fan debate with friends? Because I feel I feel like I would be like, well, I think I'm I think maybe I know this. A lot of sometimes friends will laugh at me when I'll have like a Luna moment when I'll go a bit spacey mm. or um so I do have a, a bad habit of like being too truthful like especially because I'm doing an acting class at the moment sometimes I'm just too honest and and that's the thing I always kind of get a, a pass card or get a jail card because people are like oh you just became Luna for a second <laughs> <laughs> where people would generally lose patience um I don't know if I do it though. I, I neither I do. Like whenever I'm in a situation where I'm uncomfortable and I feel like, just, where I just feel too weird, I kind of try and channel Luna because it makes me feel okay about it. It makes Aww. me feel like, oh, that's, that's cool. It's cool to be weird. Relax. You know, it is cool to be weird. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like those situations where you feel like this pressure, like you should be. Because I always end up at parties and like so much of the time I'm just in the corner chatting to my friend or by myself. And I'm like, oh, I should be more outgoing and sociable. And it's like, no, no, just be you. It's fine. <laughs> oh, I love it. I'm like, I'm melting. Now, Ivana, I want to um, get back to your time on set a little bit. Do you have a day that stands out to you? You know, one that was particularly memorable? Yeah, there were loads. Um, well, I loved I loved the wedding scene, uh, Bill and Fleur, when they got married. It was just really fun. It was really nice to be at a wizard celebration. And because um, that was the day I was working with my dad, and I'd never had 
I mean, we're the only two love goods, as far as I know. Um, and so I'd, I'd always felt like a little bit, even down to the clothes that Luna wears, I always wore like purples and yellows and greens and everyone else is in their greys and blacks. But I always had, like, it helped for the character. It helped me feel like the odd one out. And I never, however nice people were to me, I never completely fit in. And that day when I had him there, and he had these wacky yellow um, kind of patchwork quilt robes. And I just felt so at ease, like having sort of a partner in crime. It was so much fun. Yeah. you. I think you've said before that you always wished you knew more about Luna's mother. I'm interested to know if you ever really did get to spend some time with, with J.K. Rowling on set and have her sort of fill in a few blanks for you. Not necessarily like crazy facts, but did you have conversations with her on set? Um. We we had conversations, but you know what? We never talked about Luna's mother. We 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 talked a lot about her dad, and um, she told me a bit about her future husband, um, because he was actually originally, oh Rolf. Yeah, he was originally going to be in the books, and um, yeah, she would tell me about that. But but no, not not about her mother. Um, and now I feel bad. <laughs> I feel like that's <laughs> something I unexplored. Um, I don't know. I I. I I feel like she was a very grounding presence for them because her dad is so mad and wacky. Like his ideas are just so out there. I think they they probably needed someone very grounding, very earthy, you know, sort of mother nature feel to her. And so we know that Luna goes on to become a naturalist and marries Rolf and, and they have two kids together, twins. You know, what did JK tell you in addition to that about Rolf? And how did you feel about luna and neville together i mean who's the better match oh gosh um she didn't tell me much about ralph because at the time it was it was cool she was like writing the book and she would she would come visit the set every few months and we would write letters and she'd be like he's in he's out he's in but he was originally from what i understand he was originally supposed to do the job that her dad did he was supposed to explain the deathly hallows um so I mean, yeah, I, I, which which is, you know, seems unusual for, a, however, like a teenager to have that understanding of the mythology. Um, but no, I, I, I don't I don't know much beyond that. Um, yeah. Did you guys read that, that story where she goes to the Quidditch World Cup? Oh, on Pottermore? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. She I don't remember it, but um, yeah. What was your take on that to, to see these these? uh additional stories about Luna get filled in. Oh, I, I love it. It's so cute. Uh, I, yeah, I love that she's still um, rocking, wearing that freak flag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, definitely, like, after I heard about those, oh, and, and the fan made me, like, a, a flag dress. Um, it, it was really fun just to explore that. Are you still... Um, I feel like you just a little bit going back to what you you said about being a fan. If you're like me, and I think you are, I, I reread the books probably once every. I don't even know. I don't know how to finish that sentence. But I feel like a, a real fans, real fans just reread the books constantly. Are you that person? Have you revisited? And how does it feel to revisit now? Yeah, um, last time I read it because they did you see they brought out a Philosopher's Stone illustrated edition. You see that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I, re-read, I reread Philosopher's Stone when that came out. I think it's just like, it's like going back to family, isn't it? It's like going back home. Every time you read the books, it's like, oh, this is this is me. This is my Ruth. And um, yeah. I'm a big believer in like, you shouldn't just read 
as many books as possible. You should read books that really affect you a lot. And those ones always will. And um, I'll always find more in them, you know. I'll find, I'll understand different characters' perspectives more. Um, yeah, so I, I, I probably reread them. I haven't done the whole lot for a while now. Yeah. Making me want to start. But it's annoying for me because I, I, whenever I read books, like, you know how you read books like on public transport and you bring them everywhere? And <laughs> I just feel like if I'm reading those books in public, people think I'm wanting attention. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I, need- I mean, yeah, it's like, yeah. Did you, um, Ivana, take me into the last day of filming. Do you remember the, the day you wrapped and what was, uh, your headspace like? Because, you know, you, right, you said you came in for five, Katie Loon came in for four. And I feel like by the very end, you you had to just feel like you know you're. I mean, you're you're a part of half of the movies. Yeah. How was your last day? Oh my god, um, that day was yeah. It was a lot, and it was a, it was a and like an amazing day to finish on because they brought back in like all the cast because it was those those big courtyard scenes, the scene where um, you know Hagrid is carrying Harry, and then Harry comes to life again. Um, so no, we didn't like it was nice because we didn't have the pressure of having lots of lines and having close-ups, um, but it was just like a big emotional family day, uh, and I met a lot of the other actors who I hadn't met on previous movies, and um, yeah, it was cool. It was, I mean, it was a stressful day because they were doing things like they were blowing up bits of the, the set, um, and then it all <laughs> ended very, very suddenly. It was crazy. Um, and I, I remember everyone was hugging and, uh, oh, and they got this huge ladder and this, the photographer got up on top and he took like a giant cast photo, but Rupert Grint had, I think he'd already run off to makeup or he'd run home or something. And so they had to get a, they got this like, I don't even know why they had it, but they had a cardboard cutout of Rupert and like <laughs> somebody <laughs> held that and they took this picture. Um, and that, and so, yeah, it was really sad. It was, and there was a lot of hugging, but I was still like, oh. I don't really accept that this is over. And then I went to the producer's office to say goodbye. And that's when I like, I don't know, water work has happened because when I first came to the studios for my open audition, not my open audition, for my, my screen test, that was the first place I went and I met them and they were the first people I recognized from being a fan. So yeah, it felt like it had come full circle and uh, God, it was so, it was very emotional. Yeah. But I mean, that kind of grief, it doesn't, you don't process it all at once. It was like years of just being like, who am I with Harry Potter, you know? Oh, I can totally imagine. Um, who did you meet on that last day that you hadn't met before? And, and what was that experience like for you? Who did I meet? Um, oh, Clemence, uh, the French girl. Um, she was really nice. And uh, um, Sean, who played Oliver Wood. Um, it was just really nice meeting the younger cast and, um, hearing about yeah their their experience working on the movies. Who else? There, there was totally. just a lot of a lot of characters who I like because they hadn't become my friends. I got excited to see being like, oh, Ernie Beth Milton <laughs> or whoever it was, you know, and like so I didn't make friends with them. Yeah. <laughs> if you could um if you could transport yourself right now back to any one set that you got to film in, which would it be? Oh dear. Uh, <laughs> oh gosh. It would be, oh, I would love to do Slughorn's party again. That was just. Oh, that was nice. It was really fun. Um, and we had, we had these nice dresses and, yeah, I mean, Christmas. Who, who doesn't want to have Christmas at Hogwarts? Totally. 
Did it did it feel different filming Half Blood Prince after you had already had Order of the Phoenix under your belt? Yeah, it, well, I, I, the big difference for me was I actually felt I just felt relaxed. I felt like I was part of the family. I think on number five, I was just like, even though it was amazing, I was in constant fear that I was just gonna get fired. <laughs> like, <laughs> till the last day, I was always just like, they they're gonna find me out. They're gonna realize I'm a fraud, and also that I'm a mega creepy super fan. Um, so I think yeah, number number six is probably the most enjoyable one for me because. I, I felt more at home, and I, I finally started to, like, make friends, as in, like, I opened up to that possibility. Before, I think I'd held back a lot, because I was, I felt so inferior to everyone. I felt, like, a bit afraid of them. Um, so that that was a big thing. And then by number seven, there was, it was great, but there was also that sadness and that knowing that it was going to end. Um, so, yeah, six was the most fun for me. yeah. And now we've heard lots of stories about you being sort of the biggest Harry Potter fan, you know, involved in the series. But who would you say was the second biggest? Hmm. Um, they weren't really big fans. Like, I remember I was shocked after, I think it was after Deathly Hallows came, came out. And I remember just emailing people being like, oh, my God, look what happened to your character. And they were just like, oh, really? I, I haven't picked it up yet. Like, so casual. <laughs> <laughs> he really did. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know who would be the biggest fan. I thought Emma. Emma really like because she so appreciated it, and she was a total book nerd. Um, yeah, and would, she's someone who would really go away and think about her character on deep levels. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. No, no. I was I was the main geeky geek. <laughs> Did you and uh, did you and Emma get a lot of hangout time? I mean, to go back to what we were saying earlier about anti, like Luna being the anti Hermione, did you guys uh, have fun kind of playing your dynamic on screen and then reversing that off screen? Mm, yeah, um, I mean, I, I don't. It wasn't quite the same dynamic, uh, and for again, for a while, I was in so much awe of Emma that I couldn't be her friend. <laughs> She was always so kind to me, and I think that was in the same way that Hermione, like, she tries to be kind to Luna. She senses that she's a bit, yeah, she's different and out of place. Um, but she, she, she def- Emma definitely went, like, w- went out on a limb to try and make me feel at home, um, and that was nice. Yeah, um, but we, we hung out. Yeah, like, we, we used to, oh, we had a phase of going to, like, um, dance classes together we went to pineapple in london but um it's hard for emma to go anywhere gosh like i she's amazing to deal with what she does because yeah you, you don't really you can't really walk around with emma yeah yeah but she had, she had at the end at the end of filming she had like a, a get together a little party and um yeah she got people to write down memories and stuff it was really cute <laughs> That's cute. Any standout memories from that? Um, she like, predicted where we would all be. We all had to predict where we would all be in 10 years. <laughs> your your character or you? Uh, us, personally. Yeah. Us. Um, oh, my God. So we're, like, coming up on that actual like, I know, that's time crazy. of it. <laughs> that's terrible. That's crazy. Fine. I don't even want to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> Did you keep anything from set? Do you have anything? I mean, maybe you shouldn't admit to it, but I mean, do you have anything? 
You don't have to tell us what it is, but answer yes or no. Do you have anything from the Harry Potter set you should not have? Uh, honestly, like, I wish I was just, I wish I was more of a rebel, but I, I was so, treated <laughs> everything on set with such reverence, <laughs> so precious that I, I didn't. I'm not, and I still, I regret it because everyone's like, yeah, I took the golden egg, I took the good sword and all these amazing things. And I'm like, oh, um, I don't know. But I also feel like whenever people ask me, oh, did you take anything from set? It's like, okay, when you take something from set, it's like a relic or something to prove you were there. I'm like, guys, I was in the movie. I don't need this. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know? Also, who took the golden egg? Yeah, or like and Gryffindor the sword. sword. I need to know. Who actually took that? That's actually well, insane. I think, I think Dan might have been gifted the sword. But I think that okay, twins, that makes sense. That's okay. I think the twins tried to steal the egg. I don't know how successful <laughs> they were. Um, yeah. One thing I did keep, though, which um, I guess a lot of people do this on movies, but I kept every single call sheet I ever got. Um, and I love looking Aww. back at those. They have all the dates and they have the exact dates that we did certain scenes. So I think that will be cool to look back on in years to come. Yeah. yeah. Do the memories like flood back whenever you look at that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Just to know exactly what you were doing on what day. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> it's a very accurate record. Um, and, you know, just sort of looking forward, uh, we hear you're starting a blog. Can you tell us a little bit about that and when you expect it to debut? Yeah. Um, yeah, because I want to write. I love writing, but I'm really scared of it. <laughs> I don't know. I just have this thing built up in my head. So I, I kind of want to write about, well, because of playing Luna, like I get a lot of, letters from people who were bullied or um, who just feel odd and awkward and uh, they, they don't know how to deal with that. And I don't know, just from playing her and from being that way, I, I've learned ways of dealing with that myself, with my own sense of discomfort or insecurity. And um, I just find like the more I write with people about it, the more I'm like learning and I would like to, the thing is it's just so hard to write letters to everyone. Right. So I, I, I'm kind of like, oh, I need to just write blog posts and write, um, write, well, write stories eventually. And I think, so like my blog is kind of my stepping into that <laughs> zone tentatively. I'm scared. I mean, because part of me is like, oh, I don't know anything. I can't be an authority on this stuff. But I've been saying that for like the last eight years. I'm like, okay, you just have to grow up and be an adult and put stuff out there. <laughs> Totally. And is is Luna some way involved in the title or no? Uh, no, because I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> but <laughs> her her spirit it. is very much there. And I have that, I talk about, well, I will be talking about, like, I, that whole love goodness thing, which I think is her approach to life, that looking for the good in everything and everyone, and that's how you draw it out. So I'll probably talk about that. It's definitely heavily influenced by her. Yeah, I don't want to upset the lawyers. <laughs> if, they ever make, <laughs> if they ever make a little, little bit spinoff, I don't want that job going to someone else. So. <laughs> totally. Um, Speaking of spinoffs, so Luna goes on to marry Rolf's commander, who is the grandson of Newt. And that would have been cool in and of itself. But then now with Fantastic Beasts, like, are you personally excited maybe more than others? Because like, yeah, know? I'm like trying to stop aging right now. I'm just like... <laughs> Doing all the treatments. <laughs> I'm eating clean. I'm like, right, just don't age. It might take them 15 years to get to your story, but just don't age. So <laughs> no, I, I, I'm just, I'm so excited to see the character of Newt. I think, and yeah, as as 
as a Lunar Lovegood fan, I'm, I just want to see, who, like, what kind of person he is and, and, and his family would be, just to get more of a picture of how Ralph would be. But I do. I watched the trailer, and I'm like, damn, couldn't it have been him? Couldn't have been, couldn't we just switch the time period a bit? <laughs> he's, yeah. Totally. I just think he's really quirky. He's a really cute For wizard. Sure. I also yeah. I, I want to ask you um, one of the big things that's kind of happened on the Internet in the last couple of years are like conspiracy theories about Harry Potter. Do you know what I mean? I can't think of any in, in specific, but like, you know how like fan theories keep popping up? Have you have you heard any really good ones this year? No, I haven't. I don't know if I'm in that shady part of the Internet, but uh... <laughs> Mark lives there. The nocturne <laughs> really? of, uh, of the Internet. I love hearing those stories, but yeah, it scares me. Um. No, but I, I I don't know about theories. I would like to hear yours. But I do often, not often, but like every now and then, I just be like, is this all an elaborate cover-up? And the wizards are howling with laughter at how we've accepted this. <laughs> like, and I, I start to like get paranoid. I'm like, is J.K. Rowling the only muggle in the world who knows about the secrets? And she's somehow been entrusted with... <laughs> Like, I don't know, like it reinforce. it's almost like it reinforces the barrier between us and them. If, if, if there's one magical muggle who's making it seem like it's a fantasy world. And what if it isn't? Like, what if like, she's covering it up? That makes me crazy. Mark and I actually, we have been talking about that a lot saying like, what if a dark Mark just popped up one day? We would have this moment of like, we knew it was real. Yeah. yeah. Ivana, if you, if you I, looked out your window tonight and saw a dark Mark, what would you do? Oh, that is a tough question. I would go home and fetch my cat and probably pack my bag. And <laughs> I, don't know. I, would, I would go towards it. I would like go find like where it came from. Right. Or I don't know. Maybe that's like suicidal. I'd probably flee to, like, a magical location. Like, you know the way there are, like, vortexes on the earth? Like, there are places of just, like, mystical power. Like, in Ireland, there's a lot of them. We have, like, fairy forests and hills and places that are just have a lot of uh, ancient magic around them. I would probably go somewhere there. That's good. I don't know if we have much ancient magic here in the (laughs) States, but maybe. You'd probably be like, I should have taken my wand from set. You have, though. I mean... Look at all her the stories that she's um she's writing on Pottermore about what's it Ilvermorning? Ilvermorning, yeah. yeah, that's true. Did you get to take the Ilvermorning test yet? I did on a Thunderbird. How Same. Do, how do you feel about it? I feel fine because it matches J.K. Rowling, so that's <gasps> oh, good that's enough. great. Yeah, I don't know how to. <laughs> no, I don't know how to. Great. What are you? I don't know how to take my Puckwudgie. I don't know. I don't know enough <laughs> about it yet. Yeah, and they seem pretty cute, but you know what? I Hufflepuff seem so pretty cute sweet. at first too. I don't know. <laughs> he's so stubborn and sweet and like oh just he's special, that little guy. <laughs> I love it. Well, Ivana, you are delightful and it is so great to talk to another fellow fan, but also one who as is as legendary in the Potter universe as you are. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you. You've Sorry, you've put me in a paranoid place of thinking again about JK being the cover-up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like going to go and like stalk her on Twitter and be like, what? what if? <laughs> yeah. Um, but thank you. It was really fun to chat. Cool. Yeah. I'll probably go and reread the books. Now. You got to. You got to. It's been a while. And yeah. you call us back when you have when you have a... Uh... Discover new things, new things about it all. But uh, Amanda, thank you so much. Uh, And hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. 
Yeah, talk soon. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, so that's it. That's, uh, that is it for Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 and for all seven books what in the series. A Molly, journey. I, high five. We made it through seven books. I feel like we've been through a lot. We've been through every one of these emotions that Harry's <laughs> felt. We've been through our yelling phase. We've been through our curiosity phase. I'm still not over the yelling phase. Yeah. So, um, but we are not done yet. Um, over the next two weeks, we are going to be coming right back at you with episodes devoted to Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, including an interview with Eddie Redmayne and Catherine Waterston, who are the stars of the film, as well as Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, the stage play and the eighth Harry Potter story, both of which will have so many theories and fun facts and crazy stories you've never heard about both projects. So stick with us on the EW Binge podcast. You're not done with us yet. 